Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. So we're, we're coming up on a couple of years now since the fire that consumed a lot of the cathedral at Notre Dame. Do you guys remember this? When I watched it burn, I was, I very personally reacted to it. I, I couldn't look away because I actually had visited Notre Dame a, a long time ago when I was in high school. I was on the Europe trip. We spent the better part of a day in Notre Dame. We could have spent many, many days there and I loved it. It was like, for me, it was like another world. At that at that point in my life, that was like being in Notre Dame with the architecture and the grandeur and the art and everything. That was the closest that I could imagine to heaven on earth. And what I didn't realize at the time was was just how much patience and the process that it took to get this thing built. Um, like they told us that construction of Notre Dame took something like 400 years. Okay, 400 years to get this thing built. What that means is that if you're a builder on this project, you spend your whole life shaping like one piece of a, of a pillar, you know, like maybe a, one, your whole life is spent shaping a windowsill or a doorway or maybe a couple of steps. And um, everybody did their part and almost none of them got to see the end result. And I was reminded of that as I studied this chapter Uh, from 1 Corinthians 3, because my thought was, like, I am far too worldly to, like, sign on to a project like this and not be able to see the end product. After studying this chapter, though, I also realized that there is a kind of worldliness without which a project like this doesn't get built, like, without which it doesn't even get attempted. And so today we're talking about worldliness. Paul introduces us to the idea of worldliness in in chapter 3. I like what Karen Swallow Pryor has to say about this. She says, Mischief arises, sorry, um, mischief arises not from our living in the world, but from the world living in us. Isn't that great? It it seems to me when, when a lot of Christians, when we talk about worldliness and we say something is worldly, uh, we're saying that it's it's dangerous, it's it's evil, it's enticing. Like worldliness in scripture is a sin. And some of us have concluded on that basis that the world itself is only and mainly evil. And the goal of the Christian life is to escape this this world and to to go to heaven because the world is this like smelly dump and heaven is paradise. And um and so if the one view is worldliness, you might call this anti-worldliness. I'm going to use the expression anti-worldliness. Now, just so you know, anti-worldliness sermons are the easiest sermons to preach. Honestly, anti-worldliness sermons are the easiest ones to preach. And it's really tempting to go there in 1 Corinthians 3. But as we're going to see, uh, we can't. And so this isn't going to be an anti-worldliness sermon. You're going to see that. This, this morning, we continue in our series through 1 Corinthians. We've called it Table Manners. We're asking, if we apply 1 Corinthians uh, right, if we apply this stuff rightly, what kind of a church are we going to be? 
And, and what kind of people must we be if we're going to apply this and live this uh, correctly? Now, last week when we were together, uh, David Hausenjan left, led us. He gave us an, an excellent lesson on uh, the Corinthians and their celebrity pastor problem from chapter one. Today, we jump over to chapter three. We'll come to chapter two later in the series. But we, we today are focusing on chapter three and we're asking, what does Paul mean when he calls the Corinthians worldly? Like, what does he mean by that? In other words, what's actually the problem with worldliness? What's wrong with worldliness? And today, my aim is to show that there's four problems that, uh, that worldliness creates in a community. Four problems that, wor- that worldliness creates in a church community. And so we're asking, what's wrong with it? And then we're going to close by asking, what's the alternative? Like, what's better? What else, what else is there besides worldliness? And so to get us started, the first problem that worldliness creates is how it changes us. It causes adults to behave like children. Okay, it causes adults to behave like children. So as the chapter begins, Paul addresses them and he says, listen, brothers and sisters, I wish that I could treat you like adults, but I can't because you're acting like infants. You're acting like children. You're, act- you're behaving like babies. Now, the Apostle Paul knows, I hope you know this, that there's nothing wrong with children. Like children are great. The Apostle loves infants. Infants are great, even though they wet the bed and they don't like to eat their vegetables. And sometimes they throw their vegetables across the room. And infants sometimes, you know, when they're at the toy store, they, they drop to the ground and they have a tantrum if they can't get their way. And we, we forgive all of those things because they're infants. When a grown-up wets their bed, when a grown-up takes their vegetables and throws them across the room, or when a grown-up has a tantrum in the middle of a store and drops to the ground, we consider that weird, right? And, and in the same way, there's something weird for Paul about the jealousy and the quarreling that's going on in the Corinthian church. For him, it's like, this is not how we should be, you, this is not how you should be behaving. This is not the way of Jesus, but your worldliness has stunted your growth, And so that's the problem with worldliness. It causes adults to behave like children. Another problem with worldliness is is what it does to our attitudes and how it causes us to turn friends into adversaries, right? We turn turn friends into into opponents or competitors. So in this next section from four to nine, Paul is correcting them for their boasting. And we saw this last week in, in chapter one. Paul's like, no, 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 you guys are making way too big a deal about Apollos. What is Apollos after all? What is, what is Paul? They're, they're just servants. They're just, they're, they're doing their part. You know, they have distinct roles. Um, they're doing distinct roles, but, but neither of them is more important or less important. Both of them are essential. They are allies. They are colleagues. And, you know, in a sense, from a certain point of view, there's nothing wrong with having preferences, right? Like arguing over who is number one, that is actually a very human thing to do. And for Paul, it's like, that's the problem. He says, like, are you not behaving? Are you not mere human beings? Like, are you not mere people? Are you not mere men? The idea is, no, you're, you're supposed to be something more. You're supposed to be something greater, and if you knew that, if you knew what you really were, you wouldn't be fighting over which person deserves credit for what God is actually doing. We are just the workers. 
We are, we are not adversaries. We're on the same team. And that's what worldliness does. It causes us to make friends into adversaries. Worldliness does something else. It, it, it wrecks our judgment so that trivial things become ultimate. Okay? It makes trivial things into ultimate things. You know, in church world, um, this, one of the signs, the, one of the biggest signs, you know, the, the biggest signs of church, uh, of success in church ministry, especially, are what we call the three B's. Okay? Budgets and buildings and butts. And those are the signs of success. If you've got a lot of, if you've got a big budget, if you've got a, a lot of buildings, if you've got a lot of butts in the seats, then God clearly has blessed your ministry. And the more of those, the better. And I have friends who all ask, hey, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing through all of this stuff? And their answer is, we had 500 people in worship the other Sunday. I'm doing great. Or our giving is up. I'm doing fantastic. Never better. Or we're only 4 million away from finishing our building project. You know, things, things couldn't be moving along better. And I'm like, that's super. But none of that proves that you are doing fine yourself, that you yourself are a healthy, maturing follower of Jesus. None of that proves that your church necessarily is making disciples of Jesus. For Paul, this kind of measurement is actually worldly. Right? It takes trivial things like appearances and size and numbers and it makes them into ultimate things. And he offers an explanation we really need to watch carefully because he uses these, this, these metaphors, these word pictures of building and temples and fire and, ju- and gold and jewels and, and wood and straw. And, and it goes like this. Paul assumes that you and I are builders. Okay, everyone here, everyone listening to this, you are, you and I, we are builders. No matter what your vocation, no matter how you spend your time during the day, you and I are builders of the temple. Okay, and the temple, he, Paul says, is the is the people of God because it's where the Spirit lives. He lives among the people. So the temple, that, that's what we are building. You and I are building for God's kingdom. We're building up the people of God, and if we do it right, the foundation of our building is Jesus. Right? Because Paul says there is no other foundation. No one can lay any other foundation except the one that's already laid, which is, is Jesus. So all of us are building on the same foundation, but Paul knows there are all kinds of different styles and designs that we might use for, to build with. There are some, some plans are fancy and some are, some are plain. And some designs are very, very costly and some are cheap. And some builders are going to be very thoughtful and careful and attentive and diligent. And, and some builders are going to build these huge monstrosities and they're going to cut all kinds of corners in order to save time and money. And Paul's saying is that what matters isn't the, the size or the appearance of the building, but what matters is whether it lasts. What matters is the quality of the build. And, and so the question is, like, how will we know? How do you know the quality of the building? And Paul says that a fire is going to test the quality of each person's work. Like a fire. Like there's this fire. That God's, God's judgment is pictured as a fire that's going to come like a refiner's fire. Almost like a, like a crucible. I don't know if you know what a crucible is. Um, it's, a, it's a little, it's like an oven or a furnace. Sometimes it's a, it's a clay pot. And what goes into a crucible is a handful of gold trinkets 
or silver stuff or, or jewels, and it's heated up. It's, it, the fire um, con- consumes it, and it burns off all the impurities in the gold. It burns off all of the stuff that's impure about the silver or the jewels, so that what comes out of the crucible is refined. It's very pure gold or silver or jewels. And Paul is saying that God's judgment will be like that. God's judgment will be like that. If we build in the right way with the right materials, everything else is going to disappear. All the trivial stuff, all the impure stuff, all the talk about numbers and fame and wealth and possessions and promotions, all of that stuff isn't going to matter. All of that will burn. Even, Paul goes even further and he says, even some of the builders themselves will barely escape. Like all their work that they've given their life to, it's all going to be burned up and they themselves, even though their work will be destroyed, they themselves will be saved, but just barely. They'll be just barely saved. And that's what's wrong with worldliness in a community. It causes us to pay too much attention to what doesn't matter and too little attention to what is ultimate. That's a problem with worldliness. And the fourth problem with worldliness in a church community is how paranoid it makes us. Um, it, it, it causes fear to overtake our faith. Okay, Worldliness causes fear to overtake faith. So Paul gives us a really important insight that we really need to catch. It seems that worldliness, from his perspective, comes from scarcity, or what some people call FOMO. You you know this expression, FOMO, the fear of missing out? So it seems that worldliness is why some of the Corinthians are saying, there's not enough wisdom in the world. Like there is a deficit of wisdom, and we need to gather all that we can get of wisdom And God doesn't have it all for us. Like, God can't possibly have all the answers. There's just too many questions. So what are we going to do? We need to gather as much worldly wisdom as we possibly can. And Paul says, no, no, no. Like, the wisdom of the world is foolishness compared to God. Like, it's not all bad, but compared to God, it's foolishness. Like, take it with a grain of salt, okay, guys? Like, God knows what he's talking about. And I think we need to press into this for a minute because worldliness, it makes us fearful in all kinds of other ways too. It's not, it's not just, um, I, need to, I need to gather as much wisdom. I need to know more than anybody else in order for my life to count. I need to know the most of anybody I know. FOMO also leads us to say, you know, there's only so much wealth in the world. And if I don't, if I don't fight for my peace, I'm, I'm going to end up poor. Uh, worldliness tells us that there's only so much success in the world. And if you don't fight and strive for for more and more success, somebody else is going to get it. There's only so much respect in the world. There's only so much love in the world. And if you don't don't fight and put yourself out there, nobody's going to love you because there's there's a deficit of love in the world. There's only so much fame. There's only so much safety and security. There's only so much beauty in the world. There's only so much friendship and on and on and on. And it's our responsibility to gather as much of this as we can in this life because God isn't going to help us. Like, don't ask me to trust God with these things. I need to, I need to fight for my peace. Now, I don't know about you. Does, this, does that sort of explain some of the decisions that you've made in your life? Like, does that, 
have you ever felt like that? Like there's this deficit of wisdom and love and friendship and relationship. Of course you have. And, and, and that has shaped some of the decisions that you've made in your life. It's definitely shaped some of the decisions that I've made in my life. Everybody wrestles with this thing we call FOMO. And it seems like worldliness amplifies it. Okay, worldliness amplifies FOMO. And that's why Paul's answer to the Corinthians is, no, you guys, all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all of it is yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now, that is a really important and interesting response. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a really interesting response because it's not what a lot of us would expect. Because anti-worldliness comes very naturally to us. Like there's a lot it, it there those those sermons, those anti-worldliness sermons are the easiest to preach. They're the most popular sermons, they're the ones that get the most clicks in church world. I got to be honest with you, they're not the most helpful though, except for creating Pharisees in a lot of cases. That's why we can't treat 1 Corinthians 3 this way, because that's not what Paul's saying, and it's not true, and it's not helpful. That's not what the Lord wants for us, and it's actually right here in the text. Let's do a, let's do a quick review here, okay? Quick review. Why shouldn't adult Christians behave like kids? Now, if Paul wanted us to, if Paul wanted to make us, like, anti-worldly, if he wanted us to hate the world and be afraid of the world, he'd say, because kids need to grow up and they need to learn how dangerous and bad the world is for them. If they don't mature, they're liable to be corrupted. And that's not the reason that he gives. The reason that he gives is because there is work for us to do in this world. There's things to learn so that we can be growing and learning and serving uh, in the world. But, but you're not ready. That's the reason adult Christians shouldn't behave like kids. It's because there's too much work to do and they can't handle it yet. We, sh we could ask Paul, Paul, why shouldn't we pick sides between Paul and Apollos? Why shouldn't we pick sides between our favorite teachers? And if Paul would, wanted to make us anti-worldly, he'd say, because you can't trust Apollos. We don't know anything about him. He's not from around here. We don't know where he came from. Uh, but that's not the reason that Paul gives. The reason that Paul gives is that we are on the same team. Apollos and I are, are equals. We are co-laborers on this project. In fact, if this project works, God is going to raise up many, many more uh, disciples and teachers just like Apollos. That's why we shouldn't pick sides. We could ask Paul, okay, so why not boast in our numbers? Like, why not? What's, what's wrong with making a big deal out of buildings and budgets and, and butts? And if Paul wanted to make us anti-worldly, his answer would be, because, uh, hello, Jesus is the foundation. Like, we don't need anything else but Jesus. And, and maybe you've heard teaching like that. Now, let's pause here for a second. Is it fair to say that the Apostle Paul knows how a foundation works? Is that fair to, is that fair to assume? So, so here's a picture of a foundation. And if, if you know anything about building, you understand that the whole weight of a house rests on the foundation, Okay. If you have a house without a foundation, the house collapses under the weight of everything in it. 
But if you have a foundation with nothing that's been built on it, that's not a house. It's not inhabitable. A foundation without a house, we actually call that a pool. You know that? Nobody stops building at the foundation. Nobody stops building at the foundation. Paul doesn't say here, guys, don't you dare build with worldly things. He's saying, build with the right worldly things. Build with costly materials like gold and silver and precious jewels. Use those things. Use the best worldly things in order to build up and to bless the people of God. Guys, we must do this. This is why we're here. There there is no other way to build that will last. So last last little question in our review here. Uh, If we asked Paul, Paul, since, since FOMO is real, why shouldn't we fight for our little piece of the world? Why shouldn't we fight and bite and compete for all of these things? If Paul were anti-worldly, he would say, because guys, the world's wisdom is of the devil. Like it's evil and it's wicked and it's dangerous. And so, so is everything that isn't Christian. And so don't read their books. Don't listen to their music. Don't watch their shows. Don't watch their TV. Don't watch their TV shows, their movies. If it's not Christian, it is bad for you. That is not the reason that Paul gives. Paul's saying FOMO makes no sense because you have literally been given everything already. Everything is already yours. And, you know, it would be a terrible mistake to be worldly in the way that some of these Corinthians are being worldly. But it is also a profound error for Christians to live as though the best thing for us, the best, our, our best expectation in life would be to escape this world. That is not Christianity. Like, you know, like that is not, that's not our gospel. That is not what the good news says. I agree with a Canadian theologian. Her name is Jen Pollock Michael. She's from Toronto. And she says that heaven is not a sky kingdom, which will inhabit in ghostly form. Heaven is coming to earth in the form of a city. And through faith in Christ, will become residents of the new Jerusalem in resurrected bodies. If God made a good world for us to inhabit, we should take wholesome delight in created good without guilt. Without guilt. You know, Jesus came to this world and he put on flesh, just like, just like ours, just like our flesh. He healed diseases. He fed people. He cured the blind in this world. He approached the, the corrupt and the, the, you know, the religious rulers and he, he approached them and he corrected them and rebuked them because of how they were causing suffering for people in this world. And he died and he rose in this world. He's coming back here to this world because this world matters. Like, you understand, Jesus didn't die to rescue us from the world, but to redeem it. And and he says, it's all yours and you are mine. All the, the whole world is yours and you are mine. It's all yours. Art is yours and music is yours. And sports is yours, and and community, and marriage, and sexuality, and education, and politics, and architecture, and nature, and technology, uh, technology, everything is yours. Everything you could ever ask or imagine, it is already yours to use and to enjoy to the glory of God. It's already yours. Well, that's pretty different than anti-worldliness. So, 
We began by asking what is wrong with worldliness, and I just want to close by giving us some language for the alternative. Okay, what what's what what is like what else is there? I don't want to give us some language for that. It's not anti-worldliness, but it's it's something that James K.A. Smith, who is also a Canadian theologian, he calls holy worldliness. He says that what God delights in is a holy worldliness. It's a worldliness in the sense that it's not otherworldly. It is holy insofar as it encourages mundane, domestic, cultural life lived under the Lordship of Christ. Rather than looking for a divine escape hatch out of this world, we are called to holy worldliness. I just think that's so, so helpful. So call it holy worldliness if you like. If you use the language of holy worldliness, we'll know what you mean. But just so you know, if you've been with benediction for any amount of time, this isn't a new concept. We actually use the language of the, what, what we've called the three orthos. So scripture persuades us that we're free to enjoy created things that are going to help us to think like Jesus, to, to believe all that Jesus believed and to reject all that Jesus rejected. And we call that, we call that orthodoxy. We also know that Christians can enjoy created things that help us to develop the same attitude as Jesus. So that we will love what he loved and we'll hate what he hated. And we call that orthopathy. But we also know that we're encouraged to use created things that are going to help us to build on Jesus. And to do the things that Jesus did. And to be about the things that Jesus was about and have nothing to do with the things that Jesus stayed away from. We call that orthopraxy. And as far as I can tell, that's what mature... Uh, biblically faithful, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, missional Christianity looks like. That's it. Call it holy worldliness. Call it, use the, these, this language of orthodoxy, orthopathy, orthopraxy. This is what Christianity looks like in this culture. You know, one of the things that struck me as I watched uh, Notre Dame burn a couple years ago is how much of it survived. Like it looked like it was going to be this catastrophic fire. And when the fire, when the, when the smoke all cleared, you know, we saw that the damage wasn't actually as bad as it could have been. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah, there was a bunch of the pews were destroyed. Um, the, the, the spire on top was destroyed. The, a lot of the roof was gone, but the rest of it survived the fire. And, and a couple of years later, it's almost, it's almost ready. Like the walls, the columns, the bells and the buttresses survived. The art inside survived. Even the windows survived the fire. And it survived not just because it was built on a good foundation, although yes, that's true, it was built on a good foundation, but it, was all, but it survived because of how it was built and with what. See, like each builder who worked on Notre Dame had to do their part. They had to do their part with patience and with care and excellence and cooperation and without jealousy and without competition, using the right materials and using the, 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 right, uh, the right materials, using the right tools. But it's not hard for me to imagine this going very differently. Like, I, I can imagine if the fire turned out very, very different for Notre Dame, you know? Because more worldly builders, a more worldly approach to building that cathedral they might have used cheap materials, and when the fire came, it would have destroyed the whole thing. On the other hand, 
I can also imagine some hyper-spiritual, anti-worldliness types coming along, and when they're asked to help build, they would have said, no, 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 we abstain, because the Lord doesn't need cathedrals, okay? He doesn't need our cathedrals, and in that case, nothing would have been built. Nothing would have been even attempted, and to be honest, I don't know which of those is worse. I don't know which of those is worse, and I don't know which of those is better, but I do know what we are called to, okay? I know that this holy worldliness that we're talking about, this is going to cause us to make room at the table. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he begins this chapter addressing this church with a whole bunch of people who are totally worldly. Some of them are not. Some of them are, have, have, are practicing the way of Jesus and living this holy worldliness. And there are some within this church who are, are very much stuck in an anti-worldliness posture. And we're going to see that as we go on over the weeks. And Paul addresses all of them at the beginning of this chapter as brothers and sisters. This chapter begins by Paul addressing every one of them as brothers and sisters. So think of that. You've got the worldly and the anti-worldly at the same table as the more mature. And that's how it has to be. That's how it has to be. Otherwise, they will never learn. How, how are they going to repent of their worldliness if they, don't get, if they don't get to see and hear something better? How's anybody going to repent of their anti-worldliness if they can't see the way of Jesus lived more faithfully and more biblically? And so there has to be room at the table. This is the kind of people that we must be if we're going to live this out properly. This is the kind of church that we must be, that God calls us to be, if it's going to be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's close in prayer and then we'll move into our breakout rooms. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.